This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. I come up with crime ideas all the time. <laughs> like when I'm standing in line at the bank, I'd be like, I bet you I could rob this bank. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Daniel Bennett, the editor of BBC Focus magazine. If you love science fiction, then you're in for a treat. This month, I got to pick the brain of Andy Weir, author of the best-selling novel and film The Martian, and I talked to him about his new creation Artemis, the future of space exploration, and about how he crafts believable sci-fi worlds. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. So, in Artemis, Weir has swapped Mars, NASA and the all-American hero Mark Watney for something a little more realistic – a privatised moon base that's home to small-time smuggler Jazz Bashira. And while the book covers different themes to The Martian, what both clearly have in common is a love for the science that will one day help humans live on distant worlds. Here's Weir talking about where the idea for Artemis came from. Well, um, I'd had the idea for the setting for quite a while, and... Uh... I actually built up the whole setting before I came up with characters or a story to happen in it. Um, yeah, it's a bit bit of a, a windy road. Basically, I, I, I came up with, I'm like, oh, okay, I want to have like a story that takes place in a lunar city. I figured out all the details, had a scientifically accurate explanation of like why there's a lunar city, what the economics are, like how they built it, et cetera, et cetera. And I came up with all that first. Then I came up with a story to take place in it. And... Um, I didn't like that story very much. Like it was, it was completely unrelated to the Artemis you're reading now. Different characters, different story, different events taking place, different everything. Um, uh, same, same old Artemis though, and um, it wasn't very good. Uh, and also, uh, Jazz was like a tertiary character. She was, um, she I, like I needed like uh, a scene with some it's not like i wrote it but i kind of mapped it out in my head um i needed a scene that touched on the underworld and i needed a smuggler and stuff like that and so i kind of created jazz in my mind uh as a tertiary character to be the smuggler and then later on i ditched that uh story idea because it wasn't that great um, then I, I, I said like, but I love the setting. So I came up with a new setting. Oh, and by the way, this is, this included my editor at Random House, Julian Pavia. And he and I were going back and forth and I was like, well, here's my idea. And he's like, yeah, that's not very good. And, <laughs> and I'm like, Hey, you're right. And so, um, uh, and then, so I came up with a different story idea, a completely different one. Uh, diff- uh again, different characters, different concepts, different everything, but you know, same old Artemis. Oh, oh yeah. And Julian had also said like, oh, you know, uh, the story has a lot of problems, but the setting is really cool, you know? Mm-hmm. 
So anyway, I came up with a different story. It takes place in Artemis. And this time, Jazz was more prevalent. She was a, uh, not the main character, but she was like kind of a, you know, she was there, you know, much more much more often in the story. And, you know, I showed that to Julian. And he's like, eh, still not very good. Um, better, but not very good. Still love the setting. Keep trying. And, uh, you know, I agreed with him. And then so then I'm like, well, it seems like the the best parts of these story ideas are the scenes or or uh, plot lines that involve jazz. So why don't I just focus on jazz and tell a story about her? And uh, kind of one of the biggest challenges in sci-fi for me is lowering the stakes. People tend to uh, um, expect, well, if it's sci-fi, then planets have to be cracking in half, right? It's like it's a you know, and I'm like. See, to me, the lower the stakes, the more realistic the setting for me. Yeah. You know, Metropolis doesn't feel like a real city to me because, like, every Tuesday there's a meteor coming to destroy it or something like that. You know what I mean? It doesn't feel real. It's like this city that's made out of tissue paper ready to d just vanish. Um, but, uh, you know, small stakes things taking place uh, makes it seem more real. It's like, yeah, this is a city. And it's like um, – whether or not the uh, main character lives or dies or whatever, the city will go on. <laughs> yeah, insurance claims are probably affordable compared yes. to Metropolis. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Metropolis is uninsurable. But um, anyway, so I realized that I, I mean, I just liked jazz I, and I liked um, writing her and every, every, all the feedback on that particular character was good. So I came up with a story that revolved around her and it became just, uh, you know, a heist story set on the moon. And that that really clicked. Um, um, it's you know it works a lot better. It's not you know no planets are cracking in half. The future of mankind is not at stake. <laughs> you know it's just like yeah. Does that make your characters more human and more easily because you can relate to what they're going through? Well, I hope so. Um, with jazz, uh, I was trying to so. First off, uh, no one, you know, talking about the elephant in the room. Hey, hey, I don't know if you know, but I wrote The Martian. <laughs> <laughs> was, was that? And, was that a film? Uh, yeah, no, it's a, it's it's a it's a previous effort. Um, it's kind of like what is the Beatles? Oh, that was that band Paul McCartney was in before Wings. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, and so, so inevitably, uh, Artemis is just going to constantly get compared to The Martian. Um, so I'm looking forward to my third book when people kind of stop doing that. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's like the, uh, in The Martian, no one would ever accuse it of being literature, right? There is no character depth. There is no like that. There's no nobody changes like that. No one undergoes any sort of uh, change in ideology or personality, Um you don't even really know much about Mark Watney, who you just spent like 350 pages with. You don't know much about his past, his anything. All you know is that he kind of really didn't want to die, <laughs> right? So on this one, I, 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 I still don't know what magic happened to make The Martian so popular. And I, I, I you know, I, I, you know, it's kind of like lightning in a bottle, <laughs> you know, but um but for Artemis, I really wanted to have more character depth. I wanted to – I'm still a new author. I'm still learning the craft. and I wanted to have more character depth, more character interplay, more – get kind of deeper, more complex motivations and stuff. Whether or not I succeeded is up to the readers to tell me. But I gave it a whirl. And jazz is very flawed. 
Um, she has um, lots of problems. She makes bad decisions. She does the wrong thing from time to time. And it's um, that to me is is really important because I don't empathize with characters who always do the right thing because I don't. Yeah, I think, you know, you sort of touched on it. That's, you know, possibly part of the I'm sure you spent many hours trying to figure out the formula, but the formula of what made the Martian so successful possibly is partly down to Mark. You know, you had this incredible richness of science that was channeled through this very um, human approachable guy. You know, often scientists, I think in films, they're often like almost superhuman. They're not as um, approachable. They're usually used as an exposition source not as a as a deep character and the science is like okay don't worry your pretty little head about it here's the result of the science and you know i took a different approach on the martian but in artemis i'm i'm much for so one thing i like to say is that mark watney is the aspirational version of me it's uh he's all the parts of my personality that i like and none of the parts that i don't like he doesn't have any of my flaws my neuroses my anxieties he doesn't have any of that right he's got just the cool parts and magnified like he's smarter than i am he's wittier than i am he's you know all that stuff like that jazz is a little bit closer to the real me <laughs> and i mean i don't know if you do that. i don't know if any uh, other people do this but i come up with crime ideas all the time <laughs> like <laughs> When I'm sitting in it, when I'm standing in line at the bank, I'd be like, I bet you I could rob this bank. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, it's like, I mean, I wouldn't, <laughs> but <laughs> I could rob this bank. So you touched on it earlier um, and something I was particularly interested in. Um, and you, it, it, this was clear in The Martian and uh, even early on, it's, it's clear in, in Artemis. You clearly sort of build these worlds first. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I just wondered what that process was like. You know, how do you do that? Oh, well, that's easy. <laughs> um, and I can't, I can't speak for other writers, other fiction writers, but uh, I think that's pretty prevalent among writers is that world building is fun. Like <laughs> world building is the easy part. You spend all damn day doing world building. The hard part is making characters and stories that happen in the world. <laughs> right. Um I like to do the world building first because I like to um, uh, I, I just really like setting up the rules first and then playing the game in it within them. You know what I mean? It's uh, but but don't define every last little thing. It's funny you mentioned that because like just literally last night I was on a, a panel uh, with uh, four other writers and we were just talking about world building. That was the whole. Yeah. Um, the trick with world building is that you, you, you do it to the point that you're ready to write a story and then you stop because if you define the living crap out of everything, then you'll feel constrained when you're writing the story because certain things end up being sacred cows that you're not willing to get rid of. And then it's, it holds up the story. But for Artemis, I started off with really simply, I'm like, I need an economic reason for there to be a city on the moon. Because that's one of my biggest problems when I'm reading sci-fi and there's like, oh, here's a city on the moon or here's the city on Mars or whatever. And there's like, you know, 10,000 people live there. And I'm like, why? Cities don't happen without an economic reason. I mean, every city on Earth, there's a reason that it's there. I, I, you may not know the reason. And it may be subtle, but there's some economic reason for it to be there. Um, and uh, Artemis, it's like people won't just move to the moon for no reason. <laughs> right. 
Um, and so my explanation was the price to low Earth orbit is driven down by competition in the booster market, right? In the in, you know like by companies like SpaceX and um, some future equivalents of SpaceX, like the Kenya Space Corporation. And um, they drove the price to low Earth orbit down low enough that middle class people can afford to go to space, like as a vacation. And once you can get out of Earth's gravity, then actually going to the moon doesn't cost that much more. Um, it's actually getting from the ground to low Earth orbit takes a lot more fuel than getting from low Earth orbit to the moon. Um, so I figured, oh, well, once you reach that point, a lunar city would develop just naturally because of the tourism potential. It's like, you know, if you could, I mean, people would, people would put a second mortgage on their house to spend a couple of weeks on the moon, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so that is the economic foundation of Artemis. And I'm like, okay, given that now work forward, like what is now? So how do they build it? Why do they, you know, okay. So it's a tourist destination. So I went online and said like, oh, let's look at some tourist spots in the Caribbean and stuff like places where, Humans would not live were it not for the tourist industry there, right? And I'm like, okay, so what percentage of people there are tourists and what percentage are people who live there and make their living off of catering to the tourists? And, and that's, that was the foundation of Artemis. And then, then it was fun with all the science of saying like, okay, how do you build a city on the moon? You're not going to want to ship up a, a, you know, a hundred million tons of aluminum, right? You're gonna, you know, it's like, how do you, how do you build it? Well, you make metal out of the materials found on the moon. You know, is it notebooks that you're you're writing all these things down on? Is it on your computer? Do you have a, one of those crazy walls with string? No. And yeah, yeah, I, I want quite. one of those walls a little bit. <laughs> I know, I kind of want one of those walls too. But I've found that you know, Microsoft Word does that job fairly well, and I just have a, I have a document um, creatively named Notes dot doc. <laughs> that has all this crap in it. <laughs> How big is that document? Uh, it's fairly, it, it's not that big. It's actually only about seven or eight pages. What I do is I take down the salient notes and then there's just links, you know, URLs that I pasted in there of like, oh, here's a complete, you know, here's a complete article detailing every part of the FFC process for smelting anorthite into aluminum. And I'm like, you know, if I if I need to remember details of that, I go look up. You know, I go back and look look at the article. Oh, and spreadsheets, by the way. Oh, so tons yeah? and tons of sheets. Oh yeah. <laughs> Just what <laughs> linking everything together? Uh, no, 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 no. Like uh, for doing math. Oh, so, of course, uh, right. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Calculating. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would make things easier. Um, yeah. Well. And you mentioned it earlier. Who, who you mentioned who's winning the space race at this point? Yes, Kenya in, in, in the story. Basically, uh, what happened, uh, and this is known to everyone in the setting, is that um, as booster companies were um, competing to you know, make cheaper and cheaper um, boosters that go into low Earth orbit, uh, the, the Minister of Economics of Kenya, a woman named Fidelis Ngugi, um, she realized we have a chance to build a space industry in Kenya and pull ourselves out of the third world, right? And she said, what we can do, we have two things that we can offer uh, the space industry. One, we're on the equator um, because uh, the equator, it's cheaper to launch from the equator than from anywhere else because um, Earth's rotation is fastest at the equator. And so you get about 500 meters per second for free just because of the rotation of Earth. 
And that's uh, that is not trivial. That's like you need about seventy eight hundred meters per second. So you're talking about a one part in sixteen or so of just getting that velocity for free, right? Right. Um, and that that in turn means less less money spent on fuel. Less fuel, less money. Less also, weight. you can, uh, yeah. Um, also, you can uh, launch out, since you always launch to take advantage of the Earth's rotation. You launch eastward, which is why our in the U.S., our launch complex is in. On, notice it's in Florida, on the eastern coast of Florida, because that's as far south as we can get in the U.S. That's as close as we can get to the equator, and on the eastern side, so that we can launch out over the ocean. And the the reason you launch out over the ocean is because if the if the launch fails, you don't kill a bunch of people when the rocket falls to the ground, right? Anyway, so Kenya has that to offer. And then also, she said, and the best thing we can do is we can offer policy. Um, the other countries in the world, the U.S. and Russia and, and the you know, ESA and, and, and so on, they, they are mired with rules and regulations and stuff like that. Actually, right, and I do believe this, that one of the biggest impediments to commercial spaceflight right now is policy. Um, it's not science. It's policy that's in the way. And and Kenya said, like, okay, we have the equator, we can be cheaper, and we're going to offer policy. We're basically gonna make a bunch of laws that makes it so that the government like not not only gets out of the way of, but actively encourages with tax breaks and all sorts of stuff, you know, the space industry. And so they so they didn't it, it's not like a company started in Kenya and happened to be the one that did well. It's like the government of Kenya dumped a lot of time, energy, and resources into it, and they helped create the Kenya Space Corporation um, by getting a bunch of uh, corporations. It's really a global corporation. It's a they got a bunch of companies from all over the world to invest huge amounts of money into building the Kenya Space Corporation. Do you think that's almost so? Not necessarily that this will be Kenya, but that's almost certainly how we will progress further into space now because i think you know in the martian it's very much a nasa jpl story and then this is very much a more commercialized future of space in 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 artemis is is that the way you see things going yeah i do um the mar uh you know artemis is is a what i think is a more realistic vision of the future of manned spaceflight um i think uh the martian was i shamelessly evoked the feelings of the apollo era just to just to make the reader feel that you know, but it's not necessarily realistic. So obviously, Marsh was a massive hit. How, is, has your research process been the same? Uh, I, I did read about when you were looking at the Martian. Your research was, you know, just you, a computer, and your imagination. You know, what did you want to find out about now? It, was it the same for Artemis or did this kind of new world of success bring you other avenues to look at? No, uh, same, uh, pretty much the same thing. Just me, my computer and, uh, you know, Google. <laughs> I just, uh, yeah, I, I like doing the research on my own. I mean, there are lots of people I know now that thanks to the Martian, you know, I know scientists and astronauts and all stuff like that. But for the most part, it's easier for me to just look stuff up online than to email the experts. So, so you build this massive world. How much of it gets left on the like the editing floor? 
oh, like, you know, 98%. Like, <laughs> it's like, um, like all the details of how Artemis was built. I worked it out, like, all, 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 all the way from, like, you know, the first landing. Yeah, and, and there's all sorts of interesting stuff in there, but it's not germane to the story. So it doesn't go in, you know? It's just like, if I was going to write a story, imagine if we lived in some other dimension or something like that, and I was going to write, and I was going to write, like, you know, Die Hard you know, the story for Die Hard, the movie, right? And, but for whatever reason, like, uh, imagine if the United States and Los Angeles and everything, imagine if that was all fictional, right? Okay, well, there's a lot of interesting stuff that led up to the existence of Los Angeles, <laughs> right? The city, the history of the city, how it came to be, um, how the United States, how it used to be owned by the Spaniards, and then, you know, and then, and then how the United States came to be, and all that stuff like that, and then how it became part of the United States, and then, and then, you know, how how a Japanese company, which is another country by the way, another fictional country, came in and built the Nakatomi Plaza, and and so on. And it's like there there would be an enormous amount of backstory there, but you don't stop and tell that. For both books, there are moments where, and I think that's part of the appeal of them, where you you sort of stop and talk the reader through your, you know, the character, or, or you know, why something is happening. Earlier on, there's a great example with with tea. How, is, is it something you you find particularly interesting, or? The tiny little details like that with the with the tea and the coffee are just um, are uh, what I think really sell a setting. It's like when you when you hit someone with something they never thought of, but then seems obvious in retrospect. Um, that's when they're like, oh, yeah, it's these tiny little details of, of like living on the moon that, you know, like, yeah, the boiling point of water is like 61 degrees Celsius or something um, because of the low atmospheric pressure. And it's like, well, you're tea's not going to taste very good uh, uh, now yeah because we as an english person i did wonder about this oh this must have hurt and, you uh, deep on some spiritual level <laughs> <laughs> well i did wonder what would happen i was sort of tempted to try and see what would happen if i tried to brew tea at 61 degrees to see whether that would be hot enough to actually i mean it it would make an approximation of tea i think but be pretty weak I, <laughs> yeah, for the most part, you boil the water, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, uh, after, uh, I get actually like a lot of feedback on that one part, which is funny. A lot of people zeroed in on that. It's like, oh, man, wait. And I've had you know people email me and say like, well, you could make it a pressure cooker, right? You could – if you made it in a pressure cooker, you, the, the pressure – you could increase the pressure inside the cooker to the point that the boiling point is higher, Right. <laughs> and then you could make proper tea. Now it would cool off, you know. You, you it would have to cool off once you got it into Artemis's pressure, but at least it would have steeped properly. You know? <laughs> I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad you thought about this. Um, yeah, it's a whole thing. Um, and is that is that something you get a thrill out of that kind of stuff? Yes, I really do. <laughs> um, yeah, one of the things I uh, I didn't calculate it. I found a paper on it uh, for um, Artemis is a um, a cycler orbit um, called the Uphoff Crouch Cycler, Lunar Cycler. And what it is, is it is an orbit that you can put something in, like in, in this case, it's basically a space hotel that's in this orbit. And it will just, with no additional fuel necessary, it will just regularly come near Earth and regularly come near the moon at predictable intervals. And so basically you go, you when it's near Earth, you 
you you go you go to it and you then you live there for a week or so until it gets to the moon and then you go to the moon and so it's this it's this really cool thing um velocity is kind of almost as important as position in when you're talking about space so um you still have to you end up spending as much fuel to get to the moon as you would have anyway because you have to catch up to the cycler which is hauling ass but um, what it means is you don't need to accelerate this huge, heavy human habitat every time. You just just take the people to it. Yeah. So if you imagine, imagine there was this big, heavy cruise ship going back and forth between New York and London, right? And for whatever reason, it requires no fuel. It just magically does it. Now you still have to like put the passengers. And, oh, but one thing is it doesn't stop. <laughs> right it just kind of bounces back and forth and so well that means you have to put passengers on a dinghy or something like that and go catch up to the boat and load them on but that's a lot easier than making than sending a whole boat from zero to you know, I don't know. was that an idea you kind of had and then you you went to look for the papers that could no, i mean i knew that cyclers existed and I, I knew there was a, a Mars cycler orbit as well, but I was like, there's got to be a lunar cycler, right? And I went and looked and researched online, and, and I found the the Uphoff, uh, the Uphoff Crouch cycler, and I was like, oh, hey. It's an interesting time in space exploration because we've got the kind of uh, SpaceX and the commercial guys, you know, get, making really good progress at the stuff that we need to figure out. Uh, and then and at the same time, the kind of national space exploration has kind of been largely probes and robots and things like that mm-hmm. do, do you, do, you know, so, so do, do you think we, we are going to still put people on planets on moons uh are, are we due a return to that yes we are but mainly because it's a huge pr coup to do right like um so china would like to send humans to the moon and um, that would be a big thing for them. They they they'd really kind of establish themselves as a real space power by doing that. Um, there's really no economic benefit to doing it. Um, the Apollo missions. I mean, we didn't do that for. I mean, we did that because we were in the space race with the Soviets, right? Um, so, but also in terms of science and um, scientific analysis, it's actually much better to um, to put. To, to use robots. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. because, um, you know, nobody really gets upset if uh, your robot dies. <laughs> yeah, it's a, and, not such a big you don't, PR disaster. Yeah, <laughs> and you don't need to bring the robot back. And uh, the robot doesn't need to breathe, on, you know, and, and so on. Um, the Apollo missions took place during a very tiny kind of overlap of era where um, we had the ability to send humans to the moon but we didn't have the ability to make a really good remote controlled robot to do the exploration for us. And like, we didn't have the microprocessing and stuff like that, which is really interesting. It's like, it's like this was, you know, (laughs) the Apollo era took place when we were sending people to the moon, there was like people in mission control were all smoking cigarettes. (laughs) You know, it's like, (laughs) it's this weird overlap or like that. I love that scene in Apollo 13 where they're double checking the math of uh, commander level and it's like all these guys in mission control whipping out their slide rules because they didn't have pocket calculators do you feel like we need because some you know some people would argue we only need to send robots out there do you do you feel like we should be putting humans out there in space 
Um, I, I think that that's, um, that's not the right way to look at it, in my opinion. Um, a better way to look at it is this, is like once you make it economically viable for people to go into space, they'll, they'll do it on their own. You don't, have to, you don't have to push that agenda. Humans do tend to just kind of expand out wherever they were. And I do believe that once the price to low Earth orbit gets driven down far enough, there will be a commercial space flight industry because people will want to go <laughs> just because it's cool. And uh, um, companies like SpaceX are starting to bring that about. What would be awesome, the best thing that could possibly happen is if some other company uh, developed to really be a competitor to SpaceX. Because as it is, SpaceX is blowing away all these old established booster companies because you've got things like, uh, you know, ULA or Aristide or whatever, you, you name it. They are not efficient. They're not money efficient. They never needed to be. They were always government contracts. So why bother putting time and effort and resources into figuring out how to cheapen them? Um, now SpaceX is doing that and they're like just a fraction of what it costs, you know, uh, that these other guys cost. Um, now there are a couple other people trying to get into the space like Boeing, um, and, uh, Blue Origin, which is, uh, Jeff Bezos's, uh, space related company. And that's all cool. But what would be nice is if there was some Elon Musk equivalent in like Japan, you know, who was like, who started his own extremely efficient and competitive, uh, booster industry. Cause I honestly think that like, the advances of the last like 50 years of aircraft of like commercial aircraft is largely due to the competition between Boeing and Airbus. Like basically we have that particular rivalry to thank for huge advances in aircraft technology. If, if someone slapped a ticket on your desk to, uh, uh to do a, you know, a space flight, a proper one, would you take it? Nope. <laughs> no brainer uh no absolutely not i i write about brave people and i'm not one of them i uh i would not go into space or to mars or to the moon or anything like that i mean if if you set up a, a situation where it's like okay it is now the future and space travel is as safe as commercial air travel then i might consider it but that's yeah if it was as safe and as smooth <laughs> although it's commercial air, air travel isn't that smooth really but <laughs> right. Yeah. I I don't know. Well, so if it if it gets to be the way things are in Artemis, then maybe I would because first off, it's very safe. Second off, oh oh yeah. Another thing I did was I worked out all the details of how you get to and from you know Artemis. Uh, one thing is um, I may touch on this in a in a future book, but um, the idea is like. Um, it's a, a plane you can just sit in your seat and, you know, the plane takes off. There's a little bit of thrust at the beginning and a little bit at the end, but it's not like really violent or painful, you know, unless it's unless there's heavy turbulence. Right. Um, but for a rocket, that's like you're pulling, you know, three G's on the ascent. You can't you have to be in the right position. You have to be in an acceleration couch. And so so I decided rather than try to train every every potential passenger, you know, uh, yeah, on all this stuff. Instead, what they'll do is I said, like, well, Artemis takes place about 70 years in the future-ish. And um, so I said, okay, well, they have, uh, in that 70 years, they've invented much safer general anesthetic. Right, <laughs> like, yeah. it's oh, just a that. really... 
a really, really safe general anesthetic. And so if you go into space, you don't just like get into an acceleration couch and stuff like that. No, they, they put you in basically like a pod and they knock you out and then you, you wake up aboard the space hotel. Um, that way they don't have to deal with like that. That way they don't, I mean, it's horrifying to go into space. You need to be super brave. What I imagine is like the ascent craft would have like a pilot or two and a doctor. <laughs> and then a bunch of unconscious passengers and then they they fly up they dock with the uh with the cycler and then like just kind of unload everybody into their state to their rooms you know and then uh the other thing i, I imagined was like oh and in addition to the pods um the cyclers themselves would have centripetal gravity in other words they just rotate to that, provide right that was gonna gravity. be my so, my question actually do, yeah. Yeah. How would they deal with the gravity? Because they'd spin. And then um, so just imagine one of those ring kind of like hotels. And I was even thinking like, ooh, the cycler could be really clever. It's like when you get aboard the cycler, when you wake up aboard the cycler, it's spinning such that you have one G of gravity. Right. Mm -hmm. And then over the next seven days, which is the time it takes for it to get to the moon, they could just very slowly reduce the rotation rate and then by the time you get to the moon you're at one sixth g so you transition right. very slowly over the course of a week to one sixth gravity and so that you have kind of gotten used to it by the time you're on the moon andy weir author of the martian there thanks for listening to the science focus podcast in our christmas issue which is on sale now we speak to the scientists who grow brains without a body. We report on how mathematicians are taking on terrorism. And we ask Gary Kasparov whether AI really is a threat to our existence. And of course, much, much more. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.